uh, once again, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be here and to teach you another lesson of that, I believe, very important subject, which is, as I said last night, a bit unusual. I'm pretty sure you have never listened to a presentation like that, or at least not in the way how I present it. Maybe you have already uh, read a book or listened to some presentation which in some ways addressed the issue or the subject of state and church, perhaps. But I will try to dig a little deeper and take you a little bit further away. <laughs> so I hope I will succeed in doing so. And yes, I feel a little better. <laughs> when I did last night, last night I was still, I believe, somewhere walking on the moon or somewhere out there. <laughs> I was not yet in Australia. I have not yet arrived. But I think today <laughs> I feel much more confident to actually be here. <laughs> I did rest a little bit, so that, that helps. But let's just start again with opening the Bible. And I just want to point out two specific passages out of the New Testament. One passage you will find in, in the, the epistle to the Thessalonians, the second epistle to the Thessalonians, chapter 2. Once again, it's a fairly well-known passage. Let me just turn to it. Well, the second chapter of uh, the epistle to the Philosian, Philo, um, Thessalonians, I have trouble with the THS, so please forgive me. <laughs> My tongue just doesn't want to uh, pronounce the THS very well. <laughs> so the second epistle to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, almost the whole uh, chapter deals with the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness and describes that man of lawlessness to some degree. And it's always wonderful to know that God reveals to us certain truths which still lie in the future. So we do have prophetic passages, and we can know a little bit of the things which will happen in the future. Now, there's always a danger involved in that, because we are human beings, and we are rather curious. <laughs> We want to know more than the Lord has revealed to us in, in the scriptures. And I believe this is a danger. So the danger to speculate is always given, and we have to guard against it. So this is why my approach is not necessarily uh, looking at these passages and then trying to um, extrapolate, extrapolate, I believe it's the word, uh, in regards to our current situation, and, and try, trying to, to um, compare things which are happening today or in, in, in the near uh, past with what we find in the scriptures. My approach, excuse me, my approach is rather a historical approach. I look back into history and see what happened in the history and how things have developed up to our time. Because if you look into history, you see certain uh, lines, certain developments taking shape, which we can uh, relate to in regards to what we have in the prophetic passages in, in the scriptures. So the coming of the Antichrist, this is not something which just happens from one day to the next. But there is a long development leading up to his appearance. As a matter of fact, it's a 2,000 year or even longer development which we can trace back in, in history. Because we know from, uh, from John's first epistle that uh, the Antichrist, that many Antichrists had already appeared during his time, 2000, almost 2,000 years ago. But I do believe that there will be one individual in the future who will be the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is partially described here in this passage. I just want to draw your attention to it. And 
I want to draw your attention to one specific aspect of what he will do. Well, we know he will be a political ruler. We know this because, well, he's described as a political ruler in Revelation chapter 13. And this is the second passage we will look at in a moment. But right now, let's just look into that passage in the epistle uh, to the Thessalonians. He will be a political ruler, but he will demand worship. He will, as we know uh, from verse 4, Let's just start with verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called god or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So a political ruler will appear in the future who will demand worship. And this is nothing else but the merging of the state power, the highest state power, with a worldwide religion. And that Antichrist will be the object of that particular religion, the object of worship. He will pretend to be a god. And obviously, we know he's not. But he will pretend to be a god and will be worshipped by whom? By whom? Well, we have that information also. We've, we, will, uh, we have uh, given that information to us uh, by John, Apostle John in Revelation 13. And uh, if you don't, uh, if you don't uh, mind, just t- turning to that passage as well. Revelation 13, starting at verse 6. And in that particular passage, the, the Antichrist is called the Beast. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them in authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. All of them, all of them, but that all will be further defined in the following verses. And in particular, verse 16. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand, or on their forehead. And he provides that no one should be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. And then obviously we know that the number of the beast is 666. So all those with the mark of the beast, they will bow down and worship the Antichrist. So that is what is meant by all. And that is a large crowd. That's millions upon millions upon millions of people. Remember, all nations, all peoples, all tongues, all tribes, it's a lot of people. will bow down. So it, it's a worldwide political system. It's also an economic system because no one can sell or buy unless he has that mark of the beast. And then we also know it is a religion. So this is the ultimate culmination of all these different societal societal, uh, sectors of the world uh, we live in, 
po uh, political, economic, and religious. Now, the question is, which is obviously our question today and, and was my question for many years when I researched that topic, how do all these streams of society come together? And what should be our attitude as Christians when we see all of that happen? What should be our attitude? And obviously the Bible also addresses that very clearly, but let's just go step by step and unravel that particular subject. Well, Pastor Werner already alluded to the fact that I did write a book on it, and it's this one. <laughs> it's not the one I gave to him earlier today as a gift. It's a different one, but as you know, I have written a number of other books, and this is one of them. And thankfully, it's also written in English. The one I gave to you is written in German and in English, and I gave you a German uh, version of it and I gave an English version to Pastor Gary. But this is uh, written in English and it's only in English, so I guess you can manage reading English, I suppose. <laughs> but you don't have to buy it. I'm not here to, buy, to sell books. That is not my purpose. But obviously it's available to you if you like to read more. But you don't have to. It's totally up to you. But I just show you this book because, uh, just to show you, it's, it's a fairly extensive book, about 500 pages. And I spent three years doing full-time study just doing, writing this book. So every day from morning till evening, I concerned myself with this particular topic for three years. So you can imagine there's a lot to learn about it. And quite frankly, after I was done with writing this book, I did different other things and a few years later, I thought, well, let's just revisit the whole topic again. And I wrote another book of 650 pages on the same topic, just a different aspect, different aspects of it. As a matter of fact, quite frankly, and I am not saying this to impress you, not at all. This is not my intention. I just want to convey a specific point, and the point is, it's a huge topic. Huge topic. I wrote roughly 1,700 published book pages on it. So this is 500, so 1,700 altogether. And quite frankly, I'm still not finished with it. So in, in some ways, this is just an ongoing project of mine, which I've pursued since the 90s. I started in 93, 1993. I'm still not quite finished with it. Because I do believe it is such an important topic. And just... Uh, well, perhaps I exaggerate, but hardly anyone concerns himself or herself with it. But we are all affected by it. No exception. No exception. You may not necessarily be aware of it, but there's not one single exception of all those sitting in front of me. As a matter of fact, there's not one single exception of all the citizens of Melbourne, not one exception. And most of them have not the slightest clue about it. But they are all affected by it. As a matter of fact, the, the entire population of Australia is affected by it. As a matter of fact, the entire population of the United States is affected by it, and so on and so forth. And ultimately, everyone, right? This is the ultimate culmination. Everyone, all, all tribes, all nations, all tongues, all people will be affected by it. And all of them will, unless you are Christian, all of them will accept the mark of a beast. All of them. They will not see any other alternative. Most of them are totally unprepared. But even if they would know something about it, they will still be forced to accept that mark. And they will 
accept it more or less readily because just think about it, if you don't accept it, you cannot buy, you cannot sell. If you cannot buy, how long will you live? Right? So it's a serious, a very serious issue. I'm not saying it happens tomorrow or in a week or in a month or a year. I'm not saying that because who knows? I am not the one who knows it. It's God Almighty who knows because everything will happen according to his timetable. But it could happen tomorrow. It could. And this is why we need to be prepared. We need to think about this, obj uh, this, subject, this subject matter. And it's a serious one. And the other subcategory in regards to that topic is the, the theme of how all of that has already uh, advanced in the past. Remember? History. This is very important to me. And who are the players? Who are the, the, more, the most important players who have advanced that development? And we need to know some names. So I will mention some names. And some of the names are perhaps totally unknown to you. And my objective is not that you remember all these names or memorize all the names. This is not necessarily uh, something which you need to do. But you have to understand how they did it. Because this is very important because lots of people do it in almost the same way today. And these people are called evangelical church leaders. So this movement has penetrated the evangelical church. It has started with the liberal churches. And I will address the subject area from, from the angle of the liberal churches. I will not go into the other very important topic of the evangelical churches today. Some of it I, I covered when I was here a year and a half ago in regards to dominionism. I spent, I don't know, four hours or even more than four hours just addressing our current scene. It hasn't gotten better, unfortunately. I didn't expect it to get better. But during these uh, few hours I'm here again, I will look at the liberal churches first and foremost because this is the foundational knowledge you need to know. Because if you don't know this, it's very difficult to make the connection to our current scene. And ultimately, that's my, my objective, even though I, I, does not, I do not address it uh, in these uh, presentations. But once you know what I will pre present, it's very easy for you to make a connection. And that's my point. That's my intention. Church relations to the state. So how did the early Christians relate to the state? That's an important question, right? Because in some ways, they are like role models to us. They are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. You just need to read the first epistle to the Corinthians. <laughs> and then you know very quickly, they were anything but perfect, just like us. <laughs> because we are not perfect. But nonetheless, uh, due to the fact that Paul addressed some of the problems and gave us instructions in regards to how we should relate to one another as well as to the state, we know something about the fact how early Christians, first and second century, related to the state. Well, one of the aspects in regards to their relationship within that particular society of uh, Roman, obviously Roman Empire at the time, was not necessarily that they were very concerned about what Caesar was going to do. They were not watching TV every day and the nightly news to see what Caesar has come up with again. <laughs> what plans he has devised to change society for the better or worse. 
It was not necessarily their concern. Well, what is my first point? They lived in the hope of the coming of the Lord. They had a future perspective. Everything which they did in the here and now was related to that one fact they knew about that the Lord will return. And he, well, he said, be prepared, right? There are several parables. He explained to his, uh, narrated, taught his disciples and then explained them, telling them they have to be alert, they have to be watchful, because his return might be like the thief in the night. Okay, the ten virgins, for example. They have to be prepared. We have to be prepared. So, what should be our attitude? What should be our focus first and foremost? I already said it. We should place our hope in the second coming of Jesus Christ. First and foremost. We should not necessarily be so consumed and concerned about all the things happening around us. Yes, it's important. But there is something far more important than that. Our life is anchored in that hope. And because we have that hope, we can endure any problems which come around right now. This is why we can have confidence and assurance and joy in regards to the things which are going to happen because we know at the end something very glorious will happen. Christ will come back and will gather his church to himself and we will participate at the marriage lamp, uh, marriage supper of the Lamb. Right? This is our future hope and it is assured. It's not something oh, I hope about it, maybe it will happen, maybe not. No. Biblical hope is something absolutely assured. It will happen. It will happen. And when we Christians, because they knew that Jesus will come back, they also knew that he will establish his kingdom in this world. And that already gives you some clue in regards to my own personal theology in regards to the last things, eschatology, last, the things about the future, last things. I believe, and Pastor Banner and Pastor Gary know already because I gave them two books. Well, it's one book in two different languages. I believe there will be a 1,000 year reign of Christ, a literal millennium, 1,000 year reign of Christ in the future. And this will happen after Jesus has, will have come back. He will set it up. He will be the earthly ruler. After he will have disposed the Antichrist, how will he do it? I said it yesterday. He will come back and with the breath of his mouth he will get rid of of the Antichrist. He will send him into hell together with a false prophet and with the devil. The devil will meet his eternal fate, meaning hell, after the conclusion of the millennium. The Antichrist and false prophet at the beginning of it. So this is our expectation. So if I'm correct in that, and I believe I am. I spend a whole year, again, not doing nothing else but thinking about that particular aspect, <laughs> full-time, seven hours, or eight hours, or how many hours, every day for a whole year. I believe I will at least live for another 1,000 years. <laughs> I don't know how long I will live in this existence, <laughs> but I know there will be at least 1,000 years added to that number. And it is also a reason to be thankful, a reason to be joyful. Right? And after that, uh, once these 1,000 years will be ended, what will happen? Well, I will be translated into heaven. And then, obviously, 
be eternal life will begin in heaven. So there's lots to look forward to. Well, the flip side of that is if the Lord will set up his kingdom, will rule perfectly during that time, which is called the millennium. Millennium means 1,000 years. That's just the Latin term for 1,000 years. What will happen with this world system or with the system of the Antichrist? What will happen? Well, the early Christians expected that the world and its institutions will pass away. So if you put your hope into that particular system, what will happen to your hope and connection with that system? Okay, it will be taken, taken out. It will, be, it will disappear. Your hope will be misplaced, utterly misplaced. And you just need to look out. Just open the door and look out. There are lots of people who put their hope in that system. I don't have any time to spare to come to the church and listen for an hour, two hours about something which is written in the Bible. They don't have any time because they need to be busy earning money and doing this and that and the other because that's just part of the system which will pass away. We know how it will pass away. Second Peter chapter 3. How will it pass away? It will burn there will be nothing left. It will burn up. So if this world system outside of Christ, now we also know that Christ is sovereign, okay? We should always keep this in mind. But if this world system apart from Christ will pass away, well, the Christians had a rather negative attitude towards the state because the state was the epitome of that world system. And the state at that time was obviously the Roman Empire. So they had a negative attitude because they knew it stood in opposition to the kingdom of God. But they maintained friendly relations towards the state. Okay, remember, these are two different things. I can have a negative attitude in regards to the future expectations of this world system because I know it will pass away, it will burn up. But right now I live in this world, but I need to follow certain conventions, certain laws, which are put in place in order to have a more or less functioning society. And I need to be obedient to these civil ordinances, laws. I need to pay my taxes. I need to obey the magistrates except in matters of worship. Right? This is my point. Except in matters of worship. This is my point. This is my main point. Perhaps my only point. This is where we part company with everyone out there. We are good citizens. As long as the state doesn't interfere with my practice of worship. And then we have to practice civil disobedience. And this is utterly scriptural. The early Christians demonstrated it to us. Right? How did they do it? Well, we will come to it in the next slide. So let's just go and read some of these, well, one, one passage out of 1 Peter, and then one other quotation out of an early epistle by a famous Christian at that time, Clemens. This is not inspired scripture, but it just gives us, gives us some information about how the early Christians at the time were thinking about the state, meaning the Roman Empire. This was a totalitarian system. So, 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Apostle Peter charged the Christians to pray for the rulers. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, 
let it be to the emperor as supreme, and so on and so forth. It's a longer passage. I'm just quoting a few words out of it. You can, you or you should, if you have time or further interest, you should read the whole chapter. But we are charged, we are commanded, and this is a command by the Lord. It's not just Peter's opinion. This is a command by the Lord Almighty. We should be subject to the ruling authorities. That is very clear. We are not rebels. We are not revolutionaries. We are not. Okay, if I would say this, in an American context, if someone would ask me, would you have participated in that American Revolution, 1776, I would have said no. And here's my reason why. Now, I'm not saying that something good came out of revolution. I'm not saying that. Perhaps something really good came out of it. Perhaps not. But I would not have participated regardless of the outcome because I'm, demand, I'm commanded by the Lord not to be a revolutionary. First epistle of Clemens to the Corinthians. Pray for all that are in authority upon earth that God may grant them health and wealth and peace and concord. And the reason for that, I believe, now this is not necessarily um, taken from the scriptures, but it's an inference from some of the other uh, scriptural passages. As long as the state maintained peace and order, Christians could practice their religion in tranquility. If there is a society in which I live, which is in utter turmoil, if there is chaos in that society, it is rather difficult for me to maintain a regular worship in a congregational setting. So this is one reason. There are probably other reasons which I'm not mentioning right now, but this is one reason why we pray for the rulers, the powers and authority, the politicians, in order for us to have a fairly normal functioning society, in order for us to practice our Christian faith. And this is the slide I referred to already earlier. How did the Roman emperor or the Roman empire react, against, uh, react in regard to the early Christians? Where we know this from history. The Roman Caesars assumed a negative attitude towards the church and spewed out deadly hostility. And this is how it ended up, at least for quite a number of Christians at that time. They were chewed up by the lions, quite literally. Why were they willing to do that, right? Remember, all they needed to do was light some Frank incense at the altar of the cult of Caesar. That's all they needed to do. Just get a, get a match, light some Frank incense and, and toss it on the altar. That's all you need to do. If you don't, that would happen to you. Right? What would be your choice? What, be, what would be my choice in that situation? That needs to be very clear. It needs to be clear in your mind before it happens. Now, you may not think that you would be able to withstand that right now. Right? We are all human beings. We are all fearful. We don't want to die. We want to keep on living. But I'm not saying you have to tell me, but make this a priority in your own mind, perhaps tonight, perhaps tomorrow, thinking about these alternatives. What would you do? Once again, we could not do it in our own strength. We have, I just mentioned one example, the example of Thomas Cranmer. Don't know if you know the name. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time of Queen 
Mary's reign in England. And we are talking about the 16th century. The, Re the Reformation had just happened, had come to England, and Archbishop Cramer turned to the Protestant faith. And the Archbishop of Canterbury is obviously the highest ecclesiastical authority of the Church of England. Now, Bloody Mary is rightly called Bloody Mary, Queen Mary, because she was Catholic and she persecuted the Protestants. And she demanded of Archbishop uh, Gremner to recant. If he doesn't recant, if he will not return back to the Roman Catholic Church, he would be burned at the stake. What did Grandma do? Well, he was already uh, put into prison and there was a candle in front of him in his uh, prison cell and he put his little pinky into the flame and, and immediately uh, got, uh, got his hand out of it again. He said, this is, this is too painful. I cannot do that. I cannot do it. And he recanted it went back to the Roman Catholic Church. What did Bloody Mary do? He said, well, too bad you will still be burned at the stake. I was just fooling you. I just wanted to see if, if you would be uh, so foolish in order to recant. And then ultimately, well, he said, he repented. He repented of his recantation. And when he was standing at the stake and when the flames came up, he put his hand, which, well, the right hand, into the flames right at the beginning because he said this was the hand which signed the document of recantation. That hand needs to be burned first. And by the grace of God, obviously he ended up being a confessing martyr. So yes, we cannot do it in our own strength. I certainly can't. I don't know about you, but I certainly can. But the grace of God is sufficient for every situation. And with every situation, I mean the ultimate situation if we find ourselves in that particular situation of execution. The grace of God is sufficient and the grace of God is powerful in whom? 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 In whom? In the weak. Are you one of those? I'm certainly. I'm one of those weak ones. Most certainly. The grace of God is sufficient. Well, we have some writings from the Jewish apocalyptic writers, apocalypse, uh, how do you say this in English? Uh, um, apocalypse, right? Apocalypse is just a Greek term which the English took over in their language and it means what? Revelation. <laughs> so there were some Jewish writers who wrote certain epistles and books about things which I thought would happen in the future. Do I believe this is scripture? No. Do I believe they were absolutely correct in, in their speculation about the future? No. But it's still interesting to see what they were thinking up, what they were expecting in regards to the future. And they viewed the world state as being diabolical. That's quite interesting, isn't it? So in some ways, they had that understanding that at the end of time, and they were thinking they were rapidly approaching that end of time, and we are still in B.C., not yet in A.D., so before Christ came. So roughly the... Uh, 200 years uh, prior to Christ's coming and a little bit after his appearance. It was the time when these Jewish 
apocalyptic writers where writing and publishing or distributing, well, publishing didn't really exist, but distributing these writings. And where expected a world state? Well, why did they do that? Because they had the Old Testament. So just if we just would have the Old Testament and just would read some of the prophets, we would come to similar ideas, perhaps identical ideas. So it's not something which God has revealed only to New Testament Christians in regard to the book of Revelation in particular. But he has already given us quite a bit of information in regards to it in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. So the prophets would already be sufficient for us to know that something like a world state will come. And this is that world state or world state system would be utterly opposed to anything we hold dear as Christians or as these Jewish believers at that time. Well, what is the primary book we would turn to if we would want to get that information? It is the book by the prophet of or the prophet Daniel. <laughs> right? Daniel. With these visions Nebuchadnezzar had and Daniel was interpreting these nightly visions, these dreams. And he also got special revelation given to him near the end of his book. In regards to these world empires coming on the scene one after another. Where we know them now from history to be the Babylonian Empire, the Empire of uh, Persian and Medes, the Greek Empire, or rather the Macedonian Empire, because Alexander the Great was a Macedonian. And the fourth empire was which one? Roman Empire. And when we read in the book of Daniel, where the little stone came down and hit the last statue, which we know now as the Roman Empire, or at least from Revelation as the revived Roman Empire, and will topple it. It's the most fierce empire of all of them. That means most fierce in regards to its opposition to the Christians. But that little stone will come down, will become a big, big rock, and will topple that last statue, the last empire, and then God will establish his kingdom, which will last how long? Forever. We also have, obviously, well, let's, let me mention the second point, they expected the time of tribulation. Once again, they had the Old Testament to go to in order to get, get that information. Now, in the book of Revelation, or the Apocalypse of John, we see something similar. There's also a world state being portrayed to us as, well, the Antichrist Empire, but also behind the Antichrist is obviously Satan. Satan. It's Satan's empire. And he's portrayed as a big dragon. So he comes into the picture fairly quickly in the book of Revelation. And, and the Antichrist is only his tool. So behind the Antichrist is always Satan. And we all, when, we, when we read about the Antichrist, we, we encounter language like the authority was given to him, which is passive voice. The authority was given to him. Right? He would not have that authority being the world potentate unless a higher power would have given him that authority. And we know, well, a higher power is Satan. But behind Satan, we know that God in his sovereignty granted that power to the Antichrist. And we have very clear verses which tell us something about it. Well, actually, let's just turn to one verse. And it's a very important verse. And you will do well in order to at least remember the reference or, or even memorize the whole verse. Because it is such an important verse, such a rather helpful verse for all of us 
to contemplate. It is Revelation 17, 17. Very easy to remember. Revelation 17, 17. And I will just quote this particular verse to you. And you will quickly realize why I think that verse is so important and so helpful to us. Because it gives us a very different perspective about this world and what is going to happen in the future. And who is behind all of that. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God should be fulfilled. Until the words of God should be fulfilled. So who is behind everything? Who is it? Is it, the, is it Satan? Is it the Antichrist? Well, no, it is God. And the purpose behind all of those world events, as terrible as they might be and will be, is in order for one purpose to be fulfilled, and it is to show that God is utterly in control, to show that God is utterly truthful. Whatever he says in his word will come about, word for word, as literal as you can think of. It will happen according to the word of God. Is this not a reason to be thankful to the Lord that we have the Bible in our hands and can read it, can know about it, and have the Holy Spirit to enlighten us so that we can actually understand it? Should this not be a reason for us to be thankful? And yes, there will be tribulation, but the saints, the Christians, will be vindicated. Why? Because God will triumph over every power which stands in opposition to him. God will triumph in Christ Jesus. We will be vindicated regardless of what will happen to us. And some of us might end up as martyrs. But nonetheless, we will be vindicated. So let's turn to that main theme, main topic, main subject which I want to uh, present to you this afternoon, the concept of state and church. It is the most difficult or one of the most difficult subjects to define in political thought. So if you look up certain treatises in political theory, political science, and you turn to the section where these well, professors of political science, for example, uh, turn to the subject state-church relations. They find it rather difficult to define it. And I do have such books. I did read such books, and some of them are fairly substantial. And it's very interesting to read books which were written by professors of political science who were also Christians. And then to read other books about the same subject written by those who are not Christians. And the, and the two are very different. Very different indeed. Well, in most cases, I believe in all cases of the books I read, uh, by those who were political theorists, but also, also Christians, they assume the same um, position as I do. And as a matter of fact, I learned much from them. So I'm not standing here telling you something I just made up in my own mind. I learned it from others. I'm just presenting to you the finding of others. Because I do agree with their findings, their con conclusions. And their conclusion is usually separation, or this is their conclusion, their main conclusion is separation between one and the other. And we have to strictly maintain that. Whereas the others, on the other side, the non-Christians obviously see a combination of some kind. Now the combination may assume different variations. They are not always the same. But 
the commonality, the common point is that they see some kind of unity, some kind of mixture, some kind of combination between the two. So you have these two different views. And the reason for having these two different views is obviously the fact that one is a Christian and the other is not. So here are the divergent views. Church is vice regent of Christ on earth, supreme over all interests and spheres. Therefore, unification of church and state in function and administration. Okay, this is one view, and it's the view on this side of those who are not Christians. Right? It's also a view of one worldwide institution. And you know the name of that. It's called the Roman Catholic Church. Now you know something very important, right? You can make immediate connections, immediate, you can come up to, or come to a very clear conclusion in regards to the Roman Catholic Church. Where does it stand? It stands on the side of the Antichrist, on the anti-Christian system, because this is what it is. This is the most def uh, defining aspect of the anti-Christian system. Right here. Church is vice regent of Christ on earth, supreme over all interests and spheres, including the political, including the economic, including the religious spheres. Church has nothing to do with political matters. Therefore, separation of church and state. Obviously, this is the position over here. Now, having said that, that sounds a bit extreme, right? If it, Christians are asked or are required to stay utterly separate from any political activity, <laughs> is this truly the Christian position? Is this truly the Christian position? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. And we have to be careful in defining our terms very clearly and, and making uh, clear-cut distinctions. Okay, listen very carefully. I try to repeat myself or I try to clarify myself. I write here very specifically, the church has nothing to do with, Christ with political matters. The church... I'm not writing here... Christians have nothing to do with political matters. A very clear distinction. The church needs to be utterly separate from any political activity. But individual Christians may be called to be a politician and must concern himself or herself with political matters from morning till night. All every day. Do you understand the distinction? Or me as an individual Christian, I need to exercise certain political duties. I need to go perhaps to a school board and complain because one of the teachers or a number of the teachers at the school where I send my children to is opposing the Christian faith in a very overt manner and disadvantaging my son or my daughter who are Christians and, and who have made known that they are Christians and are disadvantaged because of that fact, I as a parent, a Christian parent of that particular child, have the obligation to go to the school board and make my complaint known. This is a political activity. You understand what I mean? I hope you do. But if we speak about the church, the church has very clearly defined tasks to fulfill. And the political task is not one of those. Unless it is civil disobedience because the church interferes with church matters. This is very important because this is where things are getting really fussy in our time. 
And the more you will, we advance in this presentation in the next and the third presentation on Wednesday, the more we advance, the more you see that this is the greatest temptation of, of Christians who come together in churches. They want their church to participate in political action. This is a, perhaps the strongest temptation a pastor faces or a church congregation faces to cross over to the other side. And if they do, and they do more and more, and this is what I consider to be apostasy, grave apostasy if they do that. As a matter of fact, I can, I can give you quite a number of examples. And obviously the topic on dominionism would be obviously the best example I could give to you, which I already presented to you a year and a half ago. What happens if a church moves over into the political realm? It will lose its testimony right away. It will lose its being the church of Jesus Christ. Remember what I said yesterday? God took quite some time, centuries, to separate the two. And this is perhaps the most important uh, lesson Jesus taught his disciples, be separate. And we have at least two very clear statements in the New Testament. One in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I believe, believe it's uh, verse 14, if I'm not totally mistaken. And we have one other verse in, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, which explicitly states, depart, separate yourself from that worldly system. Come out of it, my people, and don't participate in anything that system does. Two verses. So if you want to take up that point with me, you have to deal with these two verses in the Holy Scriptures. I'm just repeating what I have read in the Holy Scriptures. This is not my own opinion necessarily. Well, it is, because it's written in the Scriptures. This is why it has become my opinion. Without the Scriptures, I would probably do many other things and believe many other things. But because it's written in the Scriptures, at two places, utterly explicit, come out, my people, don't participate in their evil deeds or whatever, it's written in these two places. This is why we have to do it. That's my main argument. So if you disagree, well, you disagree with these two particular passages. So my agenda or, or my purpose of that whole uh, seminar is that we come to the other conviction that separation of church and state is mandated in the Holy Scriptures. And I tried to make a very good, good case for it. Can you see what that second man does? <laughs> in some ways, this is what I do. <laughs> right, and the first man with states on his back, <laughs> this is the opposition. That's the opposition. And what he does with his action of nailing these uh, boards and the fence is destroying the Christian church. This is what he does, destroying the Christian church. If you want this to happen, well, take up his banner. Well, this is not what I want to do. I'm, try I'm rather trying to, uh, well, counteract what he does. Obviously, there are quite a number of books written on it. This is a really good book by David van Truen. I do have that book. I have a second book which he wrote on similar uh, topics. But that is a very good book, Living in... God's two kingdoms. Okay, there is a specific, if you just take that illustration, there is a specific, on the book cover, there is a specific uh, realm where Christians are utterly separated from the other system, but there is also overlap. And the overlap is I as an individual Christian, not as the church. Okay, I'm not arguing against that particular overlap. Not at all. If you think I do, you misunderstand my argument. 
So the church differs from a state by its nature. State is something different from a state. You don't dispute that, right? Well, you know this is a church and you know this is a state. You can clearly define it by its nature and constitution. The constitution of, is it Commonwealth of Australia? It's different from your statement of faith or your church bylaws. Are they different? Yes, they are. They are very distinctly different. So a church accepts voluntary members, matters of profession of or faith. So if I profess to be a Christian, I can become a member of a church. Right? This is how I join a church. I profess to be a Christian and they accept me as a member based upon my profession. And it's a personal choice. Choice. I have I have uh, the liberty to either join the church or not. I have the choice to continue uh, staying a member and if I exercise that choice, I also make known that I submit myself to the authority of the church officers and to their teaching, the pastor's teaching. This is what a member of a church does. He says, yes, I want to be obedient to what is being taught in this church based on the scriptures. The church deals primarily with thoughts, motives, and affections, informs the conscience and the will, concerns itself with man's spiritual and moral nature, uses spiritual and moral means to handle its affairs, and employs instruction and persuasion. This describes what the church does, what the pastor does. This is the pastoral duty to break your conscience, to bring out certain things where he thinks there is a spiritual problem in your life and he needs to address that and he needs to call you to repentance and he needs to uh, make plain to you what you need to do in order to amend your ways based on the scriptures. So he appeals to your conscience, to your will, to your thoughts and motives as I wrote here and, and he deals with the spiritual aspects. Right? He doesn't stand behind the pulpit and gives a political rally speech. That's not what he does. Now, I know many people who call themselves pastors, this is what they do every single time. When we are behind the pulpit, this is what they do. Well, they are over here, not over here. This is the Christian realm. This is the realm of the state. This is not what they should do. What is the state in contrast to the church? And you see very clear differences. It differs from a church by its nature and its constitution. I already addressed that. Accepts those born within a state's territory as citizens. Right? If I'm born in Germany, I'm a German citizen, citizen right away. I don't have a choice in the matter. Now, later on, I might. But the moment I'm born in Germany, I'm a German citizen. But it was not my choice. Someone else made that choice for me. So there's no voluntary decision I make in order to become a citizen of a specific state. Requires citizens to submit to its jurisdiction. Okay? Now, if you are a church member, you voluntarily submit yourself to the authority of the past and the church leadership. Here the church just forces, uh, excuse me, here the state just forces you by pure might to do what it requires of you to do. You don't have a matter in regards to paying taxes, but the state says you have to and you have to obey. Right? No choice in the matter. The state deals primarily with external conditions. Remember, the church dealt with motives, thoughts, and the will, and spiritual matters. The state deals with external conditions. It concerns itself with man's civil and social life, may employ means of violence to further its interests. 
is very different from what happens in a church. Right? If you mix one with the other, what happens in a church? Employing means of violence, which is utterly correct and right to do for a, for a state, and if there is a mixture of the two or a combination of the two, it will be exercised within the church walls as well. And in that realm, it's utterly wrong to do. And this is why we have to have that separation. Because we deal with two different entities. And they are quite different. Conception of state church. The very nature of religion is travestied when church or state seeks to enforce its opinions to compel the conscience and, empower, and overpowers the will. Right? If the two come together, if we have a state church, this is what happens. The very nature of a spiritual and moral life implies the soul's freedom. Remember, church, realm of a church, I have a choice. I have freedom. Now, yes, I do have to obey, uh, obey but I do it voluntarily. Right? If I'm a Christian, I say, yes, Lord Jesus is the highest authority in my life. But I do it voluntarily. He doesn't twist your arm. Right? He says, my sheep hear my voice and follow me. He just calls and the sheep follow because they are his sheep. The church and the state can best serve humanity and help one another by each being true to its own mission, each following its own method. This is the best possible situation scenario you can think of if both are totally separate. Now, I don't know how many minutes I do have because I have no idea. <laughs> A break. Okay, uh, let me just see the next... Uh, yes, I think we can just do a break here and then we uh, take up the presentation after the break. Thank you.